once we're out of full-time education and we're in the workforce, which is the majority of our lives, we still need to learn. But where do we turn? I'm certainly not going to take three months off or a year off to go acquire a new set of skills, say around AI. And how do I learn in this day and age, you know, at speed, little relevant, tiny chunks like podcasts, you know, mentoring sessions, masterclasses, maybe short courses. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with and learning from my friend, Dame Sherry Kutu. She's a British entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. She's founded a number of companies that you might have heard of. She was co-founder and CEO of Interactive Investor International. And as we were chatting, I think she said it had just been sold again for over a billion dollars. She was also a co-founder and director of LinkedIn and stayed with them through to when they exited for a gazillion dollars. She is an angel investor, invested in over 60 startup businesses, and particularly gets involved with product strategy. And we talk a bit about one of her most recent involvements, a company called Superpower. We talk a bit about how that's solving a challenge that she found when she was doing some work for the government. She tells the story about how a government minister said startups and entrepreneurs were important for the economy. And she pointed out to him that the evidence was completely against that, that actually, in fact, in a tight labor market, startups had a negative impact on the economy and it was scale-ups, those organizations that are growing 20% or more year over year and have been around for more than three years that drive economic prosperity. So the government tasked her with writing the scale-up report, which she did. And off the back of that, they set up the Scale-Up Institute, which she has chaired for five years until very recently, although now she still chairs the bit of the organization that does the research and finds out what's going on in in the economy and how scale-ups are continuing to drive economic growth in the UK. So she found in that report that there were five things that scale-ups need and that the government needed to change some stuff to make that happen so that it was as easy to drive a scale-up in the UK as it was in, say, Canada or the United States. She founded Founders for Schools initiatives, which aims to connect students and business leaders and entrepreneurs to inspire and educate them about their career opportunities. In 2013, she was appointed Commander of the Order of the British Empire, CBE, for her services to entrepreneurship. And in 2017, she was awarded the Queen's Award for Enterprise Promotion. She is an education advocate. She, we talk a lot about skills and skills development. That's the thing. That's her hobby horse, her passion. It's a great chat with her. We, <laughs> I made her late for her next appointment. So at the end, uh, she rushes off. But not before we find out some book recommendations from Sherry. A fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hello, uh, my name is Sherry Kutu. I'm a serial entrepreneur and involved in a number of different companies. But I think today we're talking about WorkFinder and scaling up things and all other things, skills. You are, you're a rare individual though. You've worked in startups and large businesses and you're a woman in tech and you've been incredibly successful in the things that you've done. That puts you in quite a small group of individuals. Probably the big company, small company is almost the hardest thing to navigate. How have you managed to pull that off? Is it, is it, was it early career, late career, or you're a chameleon? Well, I've grown some small companies big. So, so that's one of the easiest ways of making, initially making that transition is by 
continuing to grow things year in, year out, year in, year out, and you before you know it, they've got, you know, tens of thousands of people that work for them. However, some of the big companies that I work for, I didn't, I'm not the founder of, but they do interesting things. So I think I'm currently on a big company board called Pearson. They are helping upskill people in lots of different countries. I was able to do that because I joined Cambridge University about 20 years ago and worked with their Cambridge assessment and CUP. And that's because I was fascinated with the acquisition of knowledge and then seeing if the people who were trying to sell stuff that allowed you to acquire knowledge worked. So hence the Cambridge assessment. So I've been fascinated by learning and upskilling for a long time. And that's led me to big education type companies. The other large company that I spend a lot of time with is the London Stock Exchange. And I love liquidity of markets and I love platforms. And that's a ginormous platform that facilitates entrepreneurial companies continuing to grow and access capital. So that's why I joined the large companies that I didn't. And I did ask myself, what am I doing? I usually like, you know, starting things or investing in things and growing them big. What am I doing, you know, joining a big company that's already big? And I like the purpose. And I think sometimes you want to be able to pull levers to achieve outcomes that you want. And sometimes large companies have assets and infrastructure that enable you to achieve your purpose. And my purpose is really about, you know, upskilling and using technology and platforms in order to do to do that. You said you were looking at, could people transfer knowledge? Were they learning? So Cambridge University is about a university. They have two subsidiaries. One is Cambridge University Press, which sells books created by the academics who are teaching at Cambridge to students everywhere. And Cambridge Assessment evaluates whether or not people are learning sometimes from those books. And I liked the linkage of the creation of material with the checking with the customer that it's it's fit for purpose. That suited my entrepreneurial mind of, does the product work? Does the product work? Does the product work? And sometimes, you know, I hadn't been clear on the process for academic publications about how they checked if what they were producing or what their academics were producing worked on the students who they were supposed to be, you know, who were supposed to be benefiting from the knowledge that was in, in these books. And so how much of what gets done to people is useful? Maybe 5%. I mean, it's hard to say, but a lot of the things that people try to upskill themselves with are ineffective. And so you need to make sure if you're the person producing it, that it is effective. And I think you need to be, if you're a person consuming, you need to be obsessive about making sure that you're consuming the right sort of thing. And that's, there's been a huge change in how learning is distributed or acquired over the past 20 years. And it used to be that we went to university, we went to school, then we went to university and, you know, and, and we acquired all sorts of stuff. And then we didn't really go to university after that, but that is gone and lifelong learning and continuing to learn all the time. You were talking about books earlier and you said, you know, you're going to ask me for my book recommendations. And when you read a book, you are learning or certainly the books that I'm going to recommend, probably you'll learn something. And, you know, we always, you know, we do need to keep on learning, but the need to learn while you're on the job so you can actually do your job well and that is good for your mental health if you think you're doing your job well. So we learn. Sometimes we watch YouTube. Sometimes we take Coursera courses. Sometimes we take Future Learn courses. Sometimes we'll just read a book from a friend or a you know a fellow entrepreneur. But those are allowing us to to learn so that we can feel more confident one way or the other about something. And the five percent of effectiveness. How much of that is? down to the desire of the individual versus the quality of the doing to them? Do you think it applies all the way through school and university? And is it just like, is that why we have to spend so long in education? Because actually it's so ineffective? No, I, and I don't think I, I would wish to be saying that 95% of what are on curriculum lists are ineffective. But there are so many materials maybe their podcasts, maybe their books, maybe their short courses, maybe their courses that are available. Which ones we choose because we have limited time is really important. And many of them are not appropriate. So, you know, if I'm 
you know, at a small company and I want to learn about CRM, I shouldn't use Salesforce because Salesforce is not for small, small companies that are scaling, but I might've heard of Salesforce. And so I'm probably going to start out there and I'm going to waste a whole bunch of my time because I'll be unfamiliar with, uh, you know, with, with, with that. So it's the matching of the, really in a personalized way that I'm advocating that you, you I'd rather get great recommendations from people who understand me um, flailing around and trying to find the right solution that other people like me have found several times before. So ratings of products, services by the people who have consumed them is really important to me. And then checking that they're like me if I'm paying attention to the, to the rating. And I'd, you know, that's if I'm browsing, if I'm receiving a recommendation, I want to know that all of those have been taken into consideration. Although I spoke to a startup last week that had implemented Salesforce with three users and because they thought that would save them time later because they wouldn't have to replace it. It seemed like a big beast for three people, but... I wasn't, yeah, and I'm sorry, I wasn't putting down Salesforce, but Salesforce is generally known and configured for for people who work in life. I too shared consternation with my consternation with them when they told me that but such is life they've done it well it could, it could have been that they had used it before at their previous jobs and if they're familiar with it then maybe maybe it was the right choice for them but yeah the 95 percent means that you can waste a lot of time looking for the right thing and that's hard and once we're out of full-time education and we're in the workforce which is the majority of our lives we still need to learn but where do we turn? I'm certainly not going to take three months off or a year off to go acquire a new set of skills, let's say around AI. And how do I learn in this day and age, you know, at speed, little relevant, tiny chunks like podcasts, you know, mentoring session, masterclasses, maybe short courses, you know, those are the things that we once were adults kind of learned from. And what are the right ones? I want to make it really easy for whoever you are to find the right one in seconds, not weeks or days. Do you think the value of a university education, is there still value in a university education? Yes, I do. However, if you look at the statistics of people who are coming out of university, less than 50% of them are saying that they're leaving that university degree feeling like they're fit for, feeling that they are, are, are equipped for the future of work. And so the satisfaction ratings of the people who are going through university degrees is decreasing. And that's been very consistent sort of read, read back for a long time. And alternatives to university are increasingly available. So you look at Coursera, I think they're teaching 50 million people a week. Name me a university teaching 50 million people a week. That's just awesome. And they, you know, they, you know, the short courses drawn down enable those people to learn what they need to learn when they need it. It's one of the reasons why we at Superpower have integrated Coursera into our recommendations and, you know, why we don't say, well, you're almost there. Maybe you should go back and do a master's degree at, you know, this university. So take a year out to have a tiny little top up that gets you, you know, into being able to do that because that's, that's not, not appropriate. So I think what's changed is massive, wholly effective material is available online, which is a place where people wish to consume it. And they don't want to have to quit their job for, you know, a year or take a sabbatical in order to learn this thing, because maybe their job won't be there if they take that much time off. And maybe they can't afford to take that much time off. And, you know, Coursera, it costs 30 or 40 pounds a month to have all you can eat. That's what I want. I think it's fantastic. It's like, what should I learn today whilst I'm on the treadmill or whilst I'm on the bike? Not so much in the summer, but certainly during the winter when I might be training more indoors. Fab. Yeah, exactly. Well, or or there's a promotion that I might be interested in. What are the skills needed for it? What's what are my skills? Oh, well, that's there's a few courses that are highly relevant for that. So we can see when people are applying to new roles, and we do an analysis of the skills that are required on you know listed on that role that are listed, and we look at. You know, they ask if you want a comparison between your current set of skills. And if there's a mismatch, we'll recommend stuff that will get you to cross to cross that bridge. And isn't that useful? And so instead of, you know, I'm interested in this, what should I learn? It's a, well, you applied to that role three weeks ago and you still have this gap. So the, these are the top five things that you should, we actually don't do podcasts yet. Maybe we should do podcasts. Maybe we should, we should um, cross match your, your podcast with the with the with the skills so with the skills sort of top ups that we're looking about but that the idea is that we know what you're interested in and we know your skill set and so we can help you progress your skills 
in a way that you want. And what I love about humans, people, is our ability to learn is infinite. You know, what we don't know is what we should be learning, but our ability and our capability, if we have the motivation, is literally limitless. And so our ability to reconfigure ourselves so that we can reach our goals is just awesome. And what other, you know, what other, so the product is human, you know, our ability to learn. What a wonderful thing to be in service of. Oh, totally. I, I have to say that sort of cross-matching might speak to you on the podcast. I might have written a blog about skills. There might be a book I've read. And so often I'm speaking to an entrepreneur and it's like, okay, do you want a podcast? Do you want to, do you want to read something? Do you want to read something short form? Do you want to read something longer? Okay. Here's my recommendations, three podcasts or three blogs or three books. And there you go. So do a lot of that matching. And in fact, we, because we got asked so often by that, we tagged all the content on the website so that people could go, oh, I'm interested in culture. What are all the conversations, articles, or books that reference culture? Well, in that case, I you talk about a data feed on all your tags of your podcast so we can work them into our recommendations. Hey, delighted to help you with that. That'd be great fun. You did a report for the government on scale-ups a few years ago. What did you find? And I think you were looking to see whether the analysis that had been done in the US was true in the UK as well. Was that the... Was that, what was the sort of the hypothesis of the whole thing? Well, the hypothesis was there was a government minister who stated that he felt that there was a positive correlation between entrepreneurship and economic growth. And there isn't. There's a negative correlation between entrepreneur, entrepreneurs or, or, or startups and economic growth. And I knew this because of the other stuff that I you know, do. And I kind of corrected this individual in a, in a meeting who had tried to make a positive correlation. I said, well, your policies are wrong if you want to stimulate economic growth because your policies are focused on startups and you need to focus on enabling companies to continue to grow because <laughs> that's what actually stimulates economic growth. And he he didn't know that. So he said, well, can you tell me a little bit more? And so we had a conversation. And then he said, a lot of people need to know this. Can you you know, can we commission a, a report from you on that? And in the in the report, I kind of came to understand through those conversations that not everybody understood that and went about trying to, you know, explain why it is that startups actually in a tight labor market decrease economic growth. And then the question was, well, if you wanted to focus on increasing economic growth, and people are like, do you hate startups? It's like, no, I love startups. Startups are great. I want more of them to survive for longer. <laughs> uh, but our policies have nothing to do with helping startups that are effective continue to grow. All of the policies and the money at the time was focused on, you know, encouraging universities to have business plan competitions. And I have nothing, no problems with business plan competitions. But if we had a hundred million to spend, I would probably want to spend 98% of it on removing barriers from existing businesses that were growing rapidly because their customers love their stuff, then, and two, you know, two, you know, I'm not, you know, 2%, so okay. You know, and then some of it on getting new stuff started. And the, the observation was that in the US, people got excited once an organization was scaling, and that's when they leaned in. And what a community does is they remove barriers that are preventing entrepreneurs and CEOs from growing their business. And all they're doing is just removing barriers. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, they're not ambitious, but if you have less of a community focus on removing the barriers that present themselves to businesses that are trying to grow rapidly or have every right to grow rapidly because their stuff works, then you have a different outcome. And so one thing was casting it in, it's not that British entrepreneurs are less ambitious or less able, it's that their environment is not enabling them to flourish because the things that occur in other economies that allow rapidly growing companies to flourish aren't here. And it was like, well, why can't we change the ecosystem here to lean in and to make sure that some of the resources are spent on helping people continue to grow? And it was the, there's a portfolio of companies you know, we want more of these type to grow. How do you identify these type? Because people didn't know how to identify rapidly growing companies. Now, the easiest way is ask them how fast they're growing. <laughs> Please put your hand up if you're growing quickly. People will flock to your door. Yeah. And then, oh, well, we can verify that by your tax records, by your, you know, PAYE. We can verify your claims pretty easily. But they they just, for whatever reason, that 
wasn't being done. It's like, well, it would be easy to do and it would allow you to, to help. So, and then it was classifying and helping understand, well, what are the five most common barriers? And talent acquisition is the number one. Um, leadership development is the number two. What you're doing with your podcast is leadership development for, for that's how I would classify what you're, what you're doing or what your podcast do. The third is new customer acquisition. Some people don't know how to do sales and go to market. And there is, you know, there's a, you know, that's hard. And then finance is the fourth. And then fifth is infrastructure. And lots of people, again, if you're the government or the media, you sometimes think, oh, it's all about finance. We don't have enough money to put into these, these startups. But actually, it's more the case that the startups, if you put money into them and they can't get the talent and they can't develop the talent that's at them, you're just going to flush the money down the, you know, down the tube. So, you need to make sure if you're an investor that they can acquire the talent and that they have plans and processes in place to develop that talent. And a barrier to a leader who's a first-time CEO may be that they don't know how to acquire talent quickly. That's a solvable problem. It's a really easily solvable problem. So if you've got someone growing, it's like, right, these are going to be your top priorities. These are the top tricks in order to hire people fast enough. You know, and then okay, you're probably having this problem now. Everybody's, you know, bursting at the seams and they, you know, don't know how to develop their own capacity or their own skills and they're already working for you. They've been acquired, but now they're burning out because you need to help them learn fast. So how do you do that? Oh, by the way, it's not written in books. So you need coach you need mentors, you know, of people who have done it before, or you need specialist services or software, as we were talking about earlier. And then, oh, well, you've got 98% market share in the UK. Uh, it's a small island, small people, small number of people. Maybe you should do an international expansion. It's like, oh, well, you haven't done that before. This is how you do it. Boom, boom, boom. So in order to continue to expand, it's really, you know, they are very common problems. But if you haven't done it before, it looks insurmountable and you can waste quite a lot of time. So we just baked it down into the key ingredients of what you needed to do to help an ambitious leader grow their company. Boom. But people didn't see it as clearly as that back then, but hopefully they see it a little bit more clearly now. And so finance, that was access to capital and infrastructure. What's infrastructure? Well, it used to be buildings, believe it or not. But it, so the, one of the prime, I guess, sort of case studies from the, from the US and from Singapore was that those in real estate would relinquish le long leases from people who were growing too rapidly to allow them to go into offices. But in the UK, there was a practice with the real estate folks that they wouldn't release you. And so people would have a whole bunch of campuses or a whole bunch of buildings occupied across London or across Edinburgh or wherever. And that gives you communications difficulties, productivity difficulties, and all sorts of, all sorts of difficulties. So it was a recommendation then to whoever it was that was providing critical infrastructure. Sometimes it's a building. Sometimes it's telephony. You know, sometimes it's, you know, zoo. again, that infrastructure has largely now been, you know, eradicated. That problem is gone because of modern practices like, you know, like the WeWorks and, you know, oh, I can just use AWS. I don't have to buy servers from, you know, and have them somewhere. So that, that kind of has fallen away as a barrier. But if you don't know about services like AWS and Zero and you know Salesforce, for instance, we were talking about that, or Bamboo HR, then you struggle when you're trying to grow, particularly if you haven't done it before. I didn't know until I somebody told me about using you know occupying buildings at the tail end leases. You know, and when we did Pier One, we occupied a building that PwC had had, got three years rent free because we took on the delapse. Perfect. You know, we had five of us moved into a building that ultimately took 60 people, but because it was rent free, it was fine. You know, and so things like that, you know, unless you know, you don't know. And that's the sort of coaching, mentoring, sparing that you can have if you've got a community that can lean in. How much of this has the government changed that to help with any of these? Yeah, the government response has been ex extraordinary. I think every recommendation has been accepted. They now send all of the all of the civil servants on courses on how to recognize a scale up and the sorts of things that they need. And they now have assigned account managers. It has boosted the likelihood of being able to to scale anywhere within the UK hugely. And there are a larger number of scale ups, but part of it was, you know, they literally now have training courses on that. They have appointed people and made them responsible for scale ups. 
And they are now monitoring their contracts that they have with scale-ups. Previously, they weren't even monitoring their procurement from from scale-ups. They're like, well, we're all about innovation. It's like, well, if you are, then you should have some contracts with innovative scale-up companies, right? It's like, oh, well, we're not monitoring that. It's like, well, you should start monitoring it. So they are they are now doing that. It is now possible to do that. So And then tools like Bowhurst are now tracking them really, really accurately. Exactly. And yeah, so that didn't exist before, but you know, Bowhurst, for instance, was hugely influenced by and and has been instrumental in in driving forward the scale up ecosystem here. Don't, now, don't get me wrong. There's still masses of things that need to be done to remove, continue to move barriers. But the the barriers are changing somewhat. After Brexit came in, then the barrier was international expansion because the ability to do business or the ease with which one did business in Britain got harder compared to other other geographies. And now it's you know sharing the tips and best practice of other scale ups so that they don't run foul of the you know the increased bureaucracy which has been put in place now because of brexit for instance did the tech visa thing come out of the work that you did as well direct absolute direct result 100 percent. yeah fab and that's magic because i mean vital to be able to attract top talent with the right skills lovely to grow it in your own country but if you need it, you need it. If you could look, if you could find it next door, you'd hire it next door because that's got to be easier than going and bringing somebody in from overseas. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. But again, removing the barriers and what I think the evidence that we produced for that was saying, if you're in Canada and US, it takes this amount of money and this amount of time, and if you're in the UK, it's this amount of money and this amount of time, which was you know three four times. And surveying the scale up leaders to say how important is it for you. Even if you don't want to get talent from another country, how important is it for you? And we, one of the surveys came back and said that 85% of the CEOs were willing to re-domicile their company in order to get access to talent. Now that's a very compelling statistic and one that, you know, was listened to. And I'm, you know, I'm delighted that they've listened to it. And it is, it is a lot easier to get talent now. It is. Fab. Skills development. So you did that and then you said, let's, let's get actively involved in helping solve the number one problem? Is that how the timeline went? That is exactly how the timeline went. And if you go to the, you know, access to talent and access to skills, leadership development is skills, skills and experience. Well, how do you get those and how do you break them down? And how do you identify them? There's also patterns and scale-ups, which are entirely predictable. So at about 80 people, you're going to need somebody who understands HR. Hmm. And this is the attributes of somebody who understands HR, what they will have done before and how you can tell if they have these skills. And so you can, you know, if you're at 60, you don't need that, but I can start recommending ways to solve problems that you're about to have just before you have them. And that helps you move faster and get that velocity and the momentum for your for your company. And the same goes for data science. We're all talking about AI. We're all talking about these things. But how do you get someone who has those sorts of skills? Because there aren't really degrees in AI. People have those skills. But how do you tell from a CV or from LinkedIn that they have those skills? Well, it's actually pretty easy because it, it you know it exists somewhere. And then, well, what are the courses that help someone who has 80% of the skills gain that extra 10% so that I don't have to hire someone from outside my company? I can upskill someone in my company. You know, how can you tell? And it's not hard. With the, well, a year ago, people were still arguing about, well, that's not really AI, that's machine learning. Now everyone's just calling it AI. They've, like All of the machine learning pedants have given up. I think it's a bit lazy. I mean, I, I actually think it's a bit lazy. And, I, and I, the skills associated with the AI and the skills associated with the ML really are on computation, the ability to manipulate large amounts of data and having skills that enable you to to do that. How can you tell in your own workforce which of those people might be the best to send on a course? And how amongst a sea of applicants can you tell that they might have the skills or the previous experience, you know, to be able to upskill so that they can do that and be successful at it? I could definitely get into splitting hairs on, you know, how exactly do you do, do that or that? But what you see is supply and demand. You have a supply of skills and you have a demand for skills. And there's incredible pressure on scale-ups in particular who need to acquire a certain set of skills. Now, if they can't find that in their applicants or in the people that work for them, how can they get it? And that's the problem that I wanted to solve. 
I wanted to get them the right people with the right skills actually working in their company at the right time. And the right time wasn't after a three-month delay after finding that they had this skill shortage. Because on my team, if I have an open position, I'm in pain. It's causing me anguish. And I might be not shipping customer orders because I don't have the humans, or I might be working all of my humans 80 hours a week, and that's not good either. So how do you solve that problem? That's the problem I wanted to solve. I want to take you back slightly before we dive into that, though. Um, what is, can you read this report on scale-ups? Scale like, is it somewhere in a way that's... Yes, it is. It is somewhere. I think if you Googled the scale-up report you'd be able to find it. I've done it for a long time, but I'm sure it's there. And and we've also created an institute called the Scale Up Institute, which does a top up to the report every year. And actually this year, there's a Scale Up Week. Woo! The government's declared a Scale Up Week this year. Did you know? It's the first time we've actually had a Scale Up Week. Last year, they gave us a Scale Up Day. This year, we have a Scale Up Week. What week is it? 6th of November, be there or be square. 6th of November this year. Monday and Tuesday is when we release the report. And then there's a number of things around. There's a retreat for scale-ups and a whole bunch of other stuff during the, the week of 6th of November. And that's, you know, that's kind of fun. But anyway, it's the Scale-Up Institute, or if you Google the Scale-Up Report, I, I think you're pretty guaranteed to find it. And if not, let me know. I'm SQ2 at X. <laughs> and then you said, I know you don't need this person at 60, but I know you need this person at 80. Because we've got the HR person. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, a headcount of 80 as opposed to 80 years old. It's like, what? <laughs> so I, it seemed like you had done a whole load of analysis and you had a whole series of roles and size and scale. That sounded like there was a playbook somewhere that said, where does that live? There's definitely a playbook, yeah. Well, that actually lives in superpower. Ah, okay, right, okay. Well, that might, that might well then segue into how did you build that data set of I know what pain you're in because this is how big you are today. Is it just number of employees and complexity? It's pretty good, I find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the insight around that came from when I was working on the Khalifa review of, of fintechs and I was the lead for skills and talent. And we took a data set, all of the adverts, job adverts that had been run in the UK for the past 10 or 15 years and analyzed the skills that they had and also the stage of the organization that was advertising that. And the hypothesis was, and actually I had written in the report way before this at 80 is approximately when you need your HR person. And, you know, we were testing that hypothesis, but it's true. And so we plotted out as part of, you know, as, as part of that, if you're at 125, you're going to need these processes. So you can, you know, it is entirely predictive. You, you, you know, when you start to need processes, it's quite painful between 25 and 75 people because they'll go from zero processes to processes and who you hire also changes because you go from people who are kind of like Swiss army knives and are happy with a certain degree of uncertainty to people who really like clarity. Well, and the person who's like a Swiss army knife, it's, I find it can be one of the most traumatic bits of the team's development because those people got it going and then they need to become a specialist in a thing because their spinning six plate skills are now less relevant. And so unless they can adapt to one of them, they find themselves like fish out of water and it's really painful. Yeah. And also if you're transplanting somebody from perhaps a larger organization or even a medium-sized organization who's used to being a specialist, they feel, again, very much like a fish out of water. And the things that they're used to having around to facilitate their working just aren't there. Like a process or a document. <laughs> <laughs> or a person who does the first bit and the last bit and you know yes all of that yeah so these things are these things are predictable you can say at 200 headcount this growth rate this is going to be the types of roles that you need to take on in order to keep on growing and it's just mathematical you look at those who have already been there what they're hiring for and you know what they haven't but that has all been systematized and therefore we make it easier so We'll do a diagnostic of you're here. This is where you are. We're going to start recommending and helping you write your job descriptions that contain the skills that you need. You won't know those skills, but you don't have to know those skills. That's why you'd use a, a platform like, like the one that we've um, created. So tell me about Superpower then. Okay. So Superpower is a platform that makes it really easy for scale-up leaders and people who also lead large organizations to get the right people with the right skills at the right place that either allows them to recruit from external or it allows them to reskill people who exist to, who already work for already work for them and need a tweak 
You can map your employees into the platform. Yeah, they just need to become members of it. We do a couple skills diagnostics and then their personalized suggestions start coming to them. For their Coursera suggestions. Say if you're a scale-up and you don't have an HR person and you don't have an L&D platform, you solve that problem. And if you don't have an ATS and you don't have any HR skills, it helps you write a decent job ad, tells you what skills you need, and then helps you get candidates who would have the right skills. Or tell you tell you what courses to send your existing team on to fill the gap. Okay. So it helps you it helps you with the internal development piece as well. Absolutely. It's a, it does exactly that. And the the recommendations are definitely not random. And there are also those that have been have been stress tested for organizations like you. The opposite of artificial intelligence, random suggestions to drive to drive user, users on the platform. Yes. Uh, so, so, but, but again, there's a huge number of factors. So there's sort of between 200 and 2000 factors per individual member that we have using the platform on their, on, of skills that they have. And from the organization, there's about 150 that they don't have to tell us about that 150, but there's approximately at the very minimum, there's 150 different factors that we take into consideration when we do the matching. And that is important. You know, is it the right course? Well, we're pretty sure because we've taken a whole lot of things into consideration, which is so much more accurate than something you you just can't hold that many things in your mind. And some of them are negative indicators, some of them are positive indicators, but that's what we've done. It's to save people time and to give them confidence that this is the right one and you should give it a try and rate it right afterwards as well. Because we clearly it's, you know, everything is rated every time that they take it. And as a business scales up, it'll end up with an HR team. So it integrates, you can continue to integrate it into your process and procedure for recruitment. Some people off the platform, other people not on the platform. Yeah. I mean, it's for both. You shouldn't have to go to one place for your talent development and another for your talent acquisition. And it's kind of failed talent development that sometimes causes you to have to go outside, not so much in a scale up because you are serving additional customers. And so you're, you know, you need, you need to, you need to take on the headcount, but it just makes it easier. And it takes many, many things into consideration that you might not even know about because you won't have done the analysis, the labor market analysis and the skills, the skills gap analyses that again, is, is what we've been using at Superfund. So helps you write a job at, helps you set the salary. And is that sort of medium top quartile, you've got a choice or is just You've got a choice. So you'll drop in a in a role description. If you don't put in a salary within, I don't know, 10 seconds, you'll get a, you didn't put in a salary. Most people require salaries in order to decide to make an application. <laughs> Here's our recommendation. So we will recommend a salary range for you. Sometime, and that is using, that is actually using ChatGPT4. Chat and we've dropped in a whole bunch of things about your company, a whole bunch of things about that role, which you may not know. And you won't have had to put into our system, but we put it into the, you know, to the query for you. And then if it's still quite wide, it's a, well, what's your budget? You know, you need between, you know, 100 and 200 pounds per day for something like that. You can put in more information to your job description, which gives you a narrow range, or you can just, you know, state where is, where is your budget? So we give you fairly broad and help you understand what to do to narrow it. And, and then kind of ask the really blunt question that, you know, has somebody signed off on a budget for this? Cause that can also help you anchor either at median or upper or lower. Also gives you exactly what you need to go to the HR person or your boss. If the budget that they've told you you can have is far less than this tells you, you need for the skills that you've put in. There are so many people listening to this that are now going and signing up to your platform. I mean, I was with a client the other day and they said, we spent six months trying to fill all of these roles in, in, in London. And I said, why do you think that is? And they said, well, because we're not paying enough. I said, well, you know, you could change that. You could hire fewer, better people, or you could put those jobs in another location, or you could just pay those people more money. And they said, well, it's not in the budget. Business model doesn't work if you have nobody doing those jobs. Or if you've survived for six months with nobody doing those jobs, your boss might decide that those jobs are no longer required. It's just like, ah, it's just like, just so frustrating. And what about if, what about location? Does that make that, that has an impact? Because I know in the past I've done some, in a, in a former life, I did some work looking to see whether if we took some jobs from Glasgow and put them in Bulgaria, would we be better off? And actually 
we found out we weren't saving any money moving jobs from Glasgow to Bulgaria. So we left them where they were. Well, there is intense variation based on location, as you know. And so if you require your staff to be physically present on your premises, then so the hybrid is a thing, although less of a thing than it was two years ago. And remote is much, much less of a thing than it used to be. But it's still, I think, a fabulous growth hack. And getting, you know, getting people with the right skills, regardless of location, is awesome. In which case, you probably need to share tips with other remote-only CEOs so that you can figure out what you need to do in order to cope with, you know, the managing and leadership of a company like like that. But back to your, you know, recommendation of salary, if you're looking at, you know, New York versus London, well, London's going to be cheaper. And then if you look at, you know, London, that set of skills versus, you know, Edinburgh or maybe Estonia, again, different steps. Do you, do you make a suggestion on availability of talent in a given location? Or does or does it does it just sort of a null response from the platform suggest that you are wasting your time? So if I tried to pick that set of skills, London probably could fill it. Estonia might not be able to. And it's like, okay, I, I couldn't fill it. The platform suggests I've got the job ad right and I've got the salary right. But the platform also will so you put in some you put in a, requ- a request and you say it's in London and they have to physically choose to come in to work in a location. Those are quite a lot of constraints. And we know how long it usually takes to get you, you know, sort of 10, 20 great applications. If it takes longer than that, then we'll come back to you and say, does it have to be in London? Okay. That, that's what I was getting at. I was getting at that because there are some variables. If it has to be London, put your salary up. That might increase the, and then if you put the salary up and you get nothing, it's like, well, they're just not there. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, does it have to be full-time? So you can have two part-time jobs and that's actually better for you in many ways because it's more resilient. They're both unlikely to be off at the same time. My experience is I get selfishly, I got I got better people and they work even though they were only part-time. I felt like I got full-time, full-time output and full-time commitment. But lots of people automatically think, oh, this is a full-time position. I'm only going to do that. And I think, you know, speaking of the female talent, you know, many of them of childbearing age are not available full-time. They'll work 20 hours a week. They might act, they might actually work 40 hours a week, but they'd be grateful for a job that was 20 hours a week that allowed them to do the school drop-off and the school pickup. But that's not full-time. So if so, another suggestion that we would have to an employer that may have limited the applicants because of an administrative error or a, some sort of error when they filled out their thing saying it's full-time, it's like, well, it's not full-time. So we'll ask, are you sure you meant full-time? Because there's a whole lot of applicants who have the skills and would apply, but it's full time, and they're they're not willing to work full time because of their their life circumstances at the moment. But they're awesome. But I think so often in the past, if I think about you know the process of creating a job ad, HR team would say to me, "Is this full time or part time?" And I'd say it's both, and they go, "Well, oh, God, I'm gonna have to run two ads, right?" It's like you've, you've doubled the workload, and you're just being miserable, right? And it's like so if the platform allows you to, can I run? Can I run both? Can I? Can it be both? Yeah, so. That's fab. That's what you want. Yeah. It just informs it informs our AI that goes off and looks for people, suggests that they should apply. And we'll yeah, we're very happy with that. We recruited somebody to the team here earlier this year. And it, we went said part-time, full-time, and the benefit was you could bring your dog to work. So we ended up with somebody full-time with a cocker spaniel. She's delighted. So are we. And you get yeah, get a bonus of a cocker spaniel as well. <laughs> you could go down to I really prefer Samoids, but <laughs> Well, we've got two, there's our two chocolate Labradors are in the office all the time. So it was just, as long as it plays nicely with other dogs and doesn't taste the chickens, it's fine. Fabulous. So are you a startup still? Or are you now a scale-up? I think technically we are a scale-up, although I still think of us as a, as a startup. Doing some, again, phenomenal, if it also defi- depends on how you define that. So um, yes. Do you think this technical definition, 10 million, 10 people, 20% a year for three years, it's quite small. It is quite small. So, and we're, if I think about the scale up institute, it is either by headcount or by revenue. And, you know, yes, we, we are technically one of those. But again, you have to be in existence for three years by the time you're a scale up. Don't forget that as well. So, startups can't be scale ups. We've just passed, you know, just passed that sort of, you know, been around long enough, measuring long enough to, to be that. The, the sort of deals or the, you know, the, the customers that are now on platform is immense. The, members and the usage is very much growing, you know, a lot faster than 20% per annum. And, and that's, and that's for that, for that reason. So 
Yes. Do I think that, you know, am I more or less excited about it than I was, you know, Interact Investor, which floated and, you know, I think it was most recently sold for one and a half billion or LinkedIn, which I joined it early, early on and, you know, left it when it, when we sold it to Microsoft for, you know, north of 20 billion. I actually think this is a bigger space. There's a billion people that need new skills and it's perfect for, you know, it is perfect for solving that, that problem. And, and I, you know, I love it. I think we're onto something huge and, and, and really important. And it's having a blast. So what's next at the Scale Up Institute? Are you, you're still, do you run it? I definitely don't run it. Nope. I, and I've never run it. I was its chairman. I inspired its creation and I was its exec chair for five years and I hired its chief executive. And I wrote into the articles of the organization that I would retire as chair on the fifth anniversary of having released the report, which I did. But I now chair their evidence committee, which is the funnest part. And the other part I don't do. And there's another chair who's replaced me, who's amazing. And the CEO who I hired, Irene Graham, is still the CEO. And she's doing she's doing a great job. So we're focused on the moment at our putting together our report in for November during scale up week. Yay. And, and that's quite, that's quite fun. It involves surveying all of the, well, not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the scale up leaders uh, across the UK. They, we've just finished running a course in the middle of June for all of the people who work for the government who are responsible for driving economic growth. And that was, you know, fun. Although there was torrential rainstorms at the time and it was an off, it was an on location on site, which was a bit weird, but at least there wasn't fires. It was just storms with hailstones. Anyway, but yeah, what's next for them? We're focused on November. We will be talking a lot about skills and talent. And there's, you know, in addition to superpower, there are other really exciting um, interventions that are removing barriers from, from scale ups. And we still continue to look at, you know, talent acquisition. How do you do international expansion? The other thing that I've just been looking at this week is, again, the retreat for scale-up leaders that is focused on international expansion. So really, it is focused on removing barriers. And sometimes the barriers change, but you know, the patterns are still very much, very much there. But they're rating other organizations. So the Scale-Up Institute, they now rate product providers on whether or not they actually solve the problems they claim to be solving. And what happened after the release of that report is went from a place where nobody understood or even cared what a scale up was to hundreds and hundreds of organizations claiming that they had solutions for people who were running scale ups. And most of those couldn't back up their claims with evidence. So it now weighs up the evidence of all the organizations that are making these claims. And in November, we publish our report, which says these are the new ones. And we verified that the these existing ones still are able to do what they say for scale-ups. And that saves leaders immense amounts of time. And that's, you know, what they do and that's what they continue to do. The Scale-Up Institute actually is preparing, I think, for all the party conferences at the moment as well, because there's there's a thing about party conferences somehow in October and there's competing political parties, all of whom need to understand how important economic growth, growing come for the, all of the parties that are competing. <laughs> So to make sure they understand that this is an important thing for them. It's not government funded. It started out being funded by private large organizations and banks. We have got some funding from Innovate UK, and that yeah. was to put on the course for the the people within the government who are working on economic growth. And that's quite right because they're training their they're training their people. But most of it comes from our our supporters, you know, like Google, like Business Growth Fund, like British Business Bank, like Barclays, like WPP. So we, there's a number of large organizations who probably serve and benefit from there being a thriving number of growing companies. And they provide a, a small fee to be members of members of the Scale Up Institute, which means that they get well, early sight of the research that we'll be reporting and to everybody in November, they'll get early sight of it and participate with, you know, with the development of that as well. Sherry, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? I don't know. I mean, I, I, know, I know you told me you were going to ask me that question. I wish I, and if I go back to, you know, when I was younger, I wish I knew then that life is entirely what we make it and that it's up to us to create our future. And if we want something, it's not impossible. We can get it. We just need to understand what's the pathway 
for that. That's that's probably I don't think I understood that when I was younger. I think and when I was younger and didn't have that understanding, it felt like life was happening to me and I was being buffeted about in the wind. And I don't feel I don't feel that way any any longer. And I don't think anybody who has that belief about that I can reconfigure myself to go in any direction that I want. It's it's a helpful way of thinking and I think it applies to absolutely everyone. Fab. And do you have any book recommendations? I've just finished reading this book that was recommended to me called Lessons in Chemistry, which is not really about lessons in chemistry. It's somewhat about lessons in chemistry, but it's a very it's a very interesting book. And it was recommended to me by my fellow scale-up friend, Lucinda Bruce Gardine, who was the founder of Genius Foods. And I can see why she liked this book and why another person gave it to her. So I like that one. And I also recommended earlier this week to a Ukrainian refugee who is living in my house, a book called Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand, which is a philosophy book on, amongst other things, entrepreneurship and the barriers to it and how to remove those barriers, amongst other things. It's a very long book. It's like 1,100 pages. And I, I hope that Diana gets through it. It's like a once and done recommendation. Come back in six months when you finish that. I'll give you another one. <laughs> exactly. She's about to go off for a master's degree. She's like, I'm only on chapter three. It's like, well, keep on reading it. <laughs> I love the Masters of Scale podcast by my good friend, Reed Hoffman. And I also, there's one of, he's got a, a number of books that he's he's written. The one, my favorite of his books is called The Alliance. And if you, and it allows you to understand, uh, I guess, how to, align yourself if you're an employer or you're an employee with the other party and it's a what do you want to do and then bringing an alliance between between them he also wrote the startup of you and can you remember the name of the second book at the moment which is very embarrassing blitz blitz scaling which i also love but i had the most insights as a leader from reading his book called the alliance so those are three good ones. And if you're a podcasty person, then, you know, I, I do think the Masters of Scale is always full of great role models who are solving problems that are worth solving. And you sort of get the real the real deal out of, you know, overhearing the conversation. I love that, The Alliance. I had Chris Yeh, his co-author on the podcast a little while ago, and we were chatting then about that whole concept of tour of duty, which I really like. Thank you, Sherry. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.